All right, you can have a seat. Welcome. We're so glad that uh, you are here. We every week we have just kind of a growing number of folks that uh, kind of find their way back, and so welcome, welcome, welcome those who are watching online, those of out in the great room, uh, part of our local community, part of our global uh, community, and welcome to those of you who are maybe here for the first time uh, and uh, someone invited you, you found your way to this place. We're just so glad that you're here. Uh, a lot of things going on in the life of the church. Uh, Ronnie has some announcements to share with you, so take a look at this. Hey Fairfax, welcome. If you are new, we would love to connect with you. If you're here visiting us in person, visit the table on the way out after service. If you're online, click the button above. One of the ways to get connected around here is in groups. We talk about this all the time. Summer is typically a time when our groups wind down. However, this summer, we're gonna have some incredible opportunities to connect. We're gonna have community groups that are gonna be meeting for the summer alone. We're gonna have opportunities to do some Bible studies online, and our transit groups will be meeting in person throughout the summer. Visit our website for more information. Fairfax, we are less than a month away from our Global 5K. We're so excited because we didn't get to do this last year, and after our first year, the excitement is just building. And so if you want to be a part of this incredible opportunity to support the orphans and our partner, Villages of Hope in Zambia, just visit our table in the lobby to get more information or register, or you can do that online as well. Fairfax, we love you. We'll see you soon. All right. Um, so I didn't get a chance to be with you last weekend. I, I was doing something kind of... Uh, Cool to be able to be a part of. I graduated from Anderson University and I got the chance to be the commencement speaker last weekend at that school. And uh, I don't talk a lot about, I know I talk a lot about Anderson, I talk a lot about Pizza King, I talk a lot about all that, but I don't talk a lot about Anderson University. And uh, it's just had a huge in, uh, impact on my life. My brother Gil uh, taught there, my, my brother Larry uh, taught there. Uh, I got all my degrees from that place. I got my bachelor's, my master's, my doctorate from that place. I do not recommend that as a way to build your resume, by the way, uh, but that's just the way it worked out uh, for me. I got a chance over the last 10 years to be a part of the board of trustees, and, uh, and I met my wife there, the most important thing, that I met Donna there at Anderson University, so I'm very, very thankful for that place, and it was just great to be uh, a part of it. Um, I want to say one thing before we jump into the message. Uh, some of you saw the announcements that came out, I'm sure, uh, from the CDC and from uh, uh, Governor Northam uh, of Virginia about just uh, mask mandates and, and the removal of mask mandates in, in a lot of different settings. And some have been asking, like, well, how does that Im impact Fairfax and, and particularly corporate worship? And so I wanted to just give you um, just a sense of a couple things of how we are responding to that. First of all, as I said, as we came into this pandemic, that we were not going to be guided by what we are required to do. We're not going to be guided by what we're allowed to do. We're going to be guided by what love compels us to do. And so every decision that we've made along the way has been a decision that's been compelled by love. What's the most loving thing to do in the unique situation that we find Ourselves, So we continue uh, to be guided by that. The decisions that we're going to be making uh, are going to be guided by what do we think is the most loving thing to do for this family that is so important uh, to us. And I talked a couple of months ago about the fact that you know, we're so thankful for uh, the gifts and talents and passions of really, really smart people that have come together and whether they 
uh, understand that God is the one ultimately that has given them these gifts or not, that God has used it uh, to uh, come up with these vaccines to uh, kind of respond to what's going on. We're very, very thankful for that. We give the Lord the glory and the credit for that. And our prayer uh, for the last couple of months has been that everyone or most everyone that can uh, in our congregation, uh, that they would be vaccinated by the end of June. And now that can even include uh, students and people that are involved in student ministry. And that continues to be our prayer, is that for the most part, most people in our congregation will be vaccinated by the end of June. And then our hope is at that point that we'll be able to kind of go back to more normal kind of worship experience, that we'll be able to kind of do away with some of the distancing requirements and mass will be optional and people can make kind of decisions based on that. We feel like that'll be a safe environment in which to do that. And as we even make those transitions, that we're gonna make sure that we provide um, a number of venues so that not only is there the venue here, but other venues in the building where those that are just not comfortable being somewhere where not everyone is wearing a mask or they want to maintain that distance, there's venues that will be provided for that. We'll continue to do online services. We want to be able to provide all the different uh, kind of options for folks so that they can continue to be a part. You can continue to be a part of this uh, community in meaningful ways, regardless of kind of uh, where you are as it relates to your comfort zone and your own health and all of that. I do want to say that this week, I'm going to send out a survey. It's going to be an anonymous survey. I just want to find out just kind of where we are as a family in terms of vaccinations and the percentage of people that have gotten uh, vaccinated and just kind of where you are on some of these uh, comfort level issues, particularly parents that have kids in student ministry and kids in children's ministry. I really want to just get a sense of where you are, what your hopes are in terms of how we congregate together, how we gather together. So kind of look for that coming out this week. Okay, so we're in week six of our study in the book of Acts, and uh, it's called Witness because it's all about this mission that God has uh, sent the church on to be his witnesses in this world. And Acts kind of chronicles the beginning of the church, the founding of the church, and how the church moved from being this little uh, Jewish sect located in this one city in Jerusalem, this relatively small city at that time in Jerusalem, to being this multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-global, multi-national reality. And last week, Kyle, I thought, did an amazing job talking about how this transforming work of God in our lives and in culture will often move us past our comfort zones and move us into situations that are sometimes challenging and hard and go against the flow of culture. But those are the things that help us to grow, and those are the things that help us to really be a part of advancing the kingdom in this world. And today what I want to look at is the second half of chapter 11, and it's the spread of the gospel into a city called Antioch. Now, I don't know if you know a lot about the city of Antioch, but it was a very influential city back in that time. The city of Antioch was actually one of the most important cities in the Roman world. It was the capital of Syria. It was the geography, obviously, of Syria was different. It's located in what would now be modern-day Turkey. It was the third largest city in that part of the world. 
it was over 10 times larger than Jerusalem. So it was a much larger city. You know, we read all of this stuff in scripture about Jerusalem, but Jerusalem really wasn't that large of a city. Antioch was over 10 times, some have estimated maybe even 20 times larger than Jerusalem, and it was way more diverse. It was diverse in, in every way. It was more diverse economically. It was more diverse culturally. It was more diverse ethnically, racially, in every way. It was just a very, very diverse city. And Antioch was built by a guy named uh, Seleucus, who was one of Alexander the Great's generals. And it was named for his father, who's was named Antiochus, and that's where you get the name Antioch. And because of its unique location, Antioch had people living from, from all parts of that world who had gravitated to the city of Antioch. There were Romans and Greeks living there because of its proximity to Palestine. There were Jews living there because of its proximity to Africa. There were Africans living there. There were particularly a number of North Africans that were living there because of its proximity to Asia. There were people from Persia and China and modern day India living there. People from all over that part of the world. In fact, we know that Antioch had at least 18 different ethnic quarters or identifiable ethnic neighborhoods in the city. And the reason for these distinct ethnic quarters was because multi-ethnic cities like Antioch were diverse, but they were not integrated. So in the city were all of this, was all of this diversity, but it really wasn't integrated in terms of the way that they kind of related to each other. And when, when Seleucus built the city, not only did he build this huge wall around the city of Antioch, which was typical to protect the city from outsiders that were coming in that might destroy it, he also built huge walls in the city between the neighborhoods that could quickly be closed off if some kind of tension or conflict arose in the city. Because the assumption was if a conflict arose in the city, it would probably be around ethnic lines. And then the gospel comes to this city. The gospel comes to Antioch. And this is what we're told takes place as the gospel begins to permeate this city. And I just want to read the whole text. It starts in verse 19 of chapter 11, goes through verse 26. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. Uh, that was what Jess talked about a few weeks ago, was the persecution that happened to Stephen and then kind of broader persecution that happened to the rest of the church, and they began to move out from Jerusalem. It says, uh, that persecution in connection with Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So, Keep that in mind. So they scattered, and so the message of the gospel began to go out, but it went out to a very select group of people. It went out to still people who were religious, believed in the Bible, were familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, had a sense that there's this one God. Like these were people, this was the low-hanging fruit. These are people that already kind of had an affinity toward all of this. And so they began to preach the gospel to people who were already Jewish. Some of them, however, I love this, people that go against the flow, some of this, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch 
and began to speak to the Greeks there also. Now, the Greeks were Hellenists. They were polytheists. They uh, had a belief in many gods. They, in many cases, had no idea what the Old Testament was about, no idea of the Hebrew scriptures, no idea of this one God. Like, they were from a completely different kind of context. And the gospel began to be preached to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So people started getting saved in the midst of this. People who had no religious background as it related to Judaism, no understanding of the Old Testament, none of that. People started getting saved. Now, this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And Barnabas, it says in verse 24, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So people are coming to Jesus. The church in Jerusalem recognizes that, sends Barnabas to see what's going on. Is this the real deal? He gets there. He sees what's going on. And then as he begins to encourage them as he begins to pour into them more people start coming to Jesus more people start putting their faith in Christ and then Barnabas is so excited about what's going on Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul to tell Saul what's going on in Antioch and when he found when he finds him he brings him back to Antioch and so for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church they taught them great numbers of people, so they discipled them, they mentored them, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, here's the deal. Up to this point, for the most part, religion was just an outgrowth of your culture. So culture and religion were like two sides of the same coin. And it wasn't that you know you kind of were part of a culture and then you made decisions as it related to your religion. Your religion grew out of your culture. And so uh, the Greeks worshiped Greek gods and the Romans worshiped Roman gods and the Ephesians worshiped Ephesians God, Ephesian gods and the Jews worshiped the Jewish God. That was just kind of culturally the way it was. But now in Antioch, there are all of these people from all these different religions and nationalities and cultures and ethnicities and races and all of that who are hearing the gospel and becoming followers of Christ. And that had never really happened before. Like this is the first time in history that that kind of thing is happening. Even on the day of Pentecost, which, which we talked about the second week, where um, you know the Holy Spirit falls and they begin to preach the gospel and then in Jerusalem are all these different Jews that have come from uh, different language backgrounds, different nationalities because they had spread out from Jerusalem and they now all come back for the feast of Passover and they're hearing the gospel in their own language. But still, the people who are hearing the gospel, it, like they're all from one religion. They're all still from this religion that understands the Jewish scriptures and has the idea of one God and all of that, all from the same religion. But now in Antioch, something incredibly different is going on, something really, really amazing. People from all these different nationalities and cultures and ethnicities begin to follow Jesus. In fact, by the time you get to Acts 13, this is the pastoral leadership team of the church in Antioch. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, 
Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So you have five identified leaders in the church in Antioch, and of those five leaders that are listed, they represent three continents and four different racial groups. So something really profound is going on in Antioch. There's the crossing of all these ethnic and racial walls. People are worshiping together, people from all these different ethnic Quarters that have been kind of isolated from each other are coming together in meaningful fellowship. Intimate relationships are being formed in the midst of huge cultural differences. People are getting saved. People are getting discipled. People are praying together. People are serving together. In fact, what was going on in Antioch was so contagious that this relatively new church begins to send out missionaries to the rest of the world. Because it's so transformed their city in bringing all of these people together that you wouldn't naturally think would be coming together to pray together and worship together and study together and, and, and have fellowship together that it's so contagious. They're saying, we got to get this stuff. We got to get this message about Jesus out. And so this, little, this new church in Antioch begins sending missionaries out to the rest of the world, really, really incredible stuff. Now, all of this is so radical that the people of Antioch have to come up with a new name just to describe these followers of Jesus. They had to come up with a name that wasn't just connected to some particular culture, which is the way, again, you identified with your religion based on your culture, so there wasn't really a name for any kind of religion that wasn't connected to one particular culture because people from all these different cultures were part of this movement. So at Antioch, it's the first time that they started calling followers of Jesus Christians. And that wasn't meant as a compliment, nor was it meant as some branding, uh, you know, like we got to brand this new religion. Why, how are we going to brand this new, oh, we'll brand it Christians. No, this wasn't like the branding of a new religion. This wasn't like a compliment. It was just that these people in Antioch were going, we have no way how to talk about these crazy people who follow Jesus because they don't fall into any of the normal categories that religious people fall into. So all we know to do is just to identify them as being associated with this Jesus Christ that they seem to be so excited about. So we'll just call them Christians, people that are associated with Christ. Now, when the church in Jerusalem hears about, again, all this exciting stuff, they send Barnabas. Barnabas gets Paul and comes and when Barnabas arrives in Antioch, again, this is what we're told. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, the name Barnabas means uh, son of consolation or son of comfort. And it's the perfect name for this guy because we're told that when he comes to Antioch, he encourages the people that are there. And the Greek word that is translated encouraged is parakaleo. And, you know, it's a combination of two words, which is 
often the case with Greek words, combination of two words. Kaleo means to call, to exhort, to challenge, to uh, point people toward a goal, to motivate people, to move in a certain direction, all of that. It's a very kind of aggressive word. And the word para means to come alongside, to be sympathetic, to be empathetic. So as you can see, there's a little bit of tension in this parakaleo, a little bit of tension in the word itself, because to exhort and to challenge and to point people in a certain direction, to call people to something, it, like it feels pretty confrontational, but to come alongside someone, to be sympathetic to what they're going through, to be empathetic to what they're going through, feels a little bit more caring and compassionate. But when you put both of those together, you get the same kind of thing that Paul talks about when he says that as followers of Jesus, we should speak the truth in love. And that's what Barnabas does when he shows up in this multicultural, multi-ethnic, multinational kind of city where there are all of these opportunities for conflict. If there was ever a city that was set up for conflict, Antioch was that city. If there was ever a church that was set up for conflict, the church in Antioch was that church. But Barnabas speaks the truth in love. He has this parakaleo ministry, this ministry of encouragement, which is both challenging and confrontational and comforting and sympathetic all at the same time. And the result is that a lot of people come to Jesus and a lot of people get discipled in their faith. Now, I just want to remind you of two things I think that kind of grow out of the ministry of Barnabas, this ministry of encouragement. The first thing is this, that we cannot grow into the people that God created us to be unless we are willing to surround ourselves with encouragers like Barnabas. Like, becoming the person that God created you to be is not, um, it's not a solo journey. It is not an individual journey. It is a journey that requires us to surround ourselves, particularly with people who are encouragers like Barnabas. Like, all of us need encouragers in our life. We need people who are not so cowardly that they affirm us no matter what we do or what we say. It's just like they're always affirming us no matter what we do. Like we need people that are not so cowardly that they do that and we need people who are not so impatient that they give us advice way too quickly. Like we need people who can speak the truth in love to us because if a person comes at you with just the truth and you don't sense that they love you, you don't sense that they care about you, you don't sense that there's a kind of a loving attitude behind what they're doing, that you will just dismiss them. And I know that you will dismiss them because I dismiss them. Like if they're a person that come at me with the truth, but there's not this sense of I care about you as a person, like there's just a tendency to kind of dismiss that. And if a person loves you, is empathetic toward what you're going through, is sympathetic for what, because of what you're going through, but never challenges you, like never confronts you on anything, you just won't change. You won't grow. You'll, you'll keep the status quo. You'll end up, you know, the, the end of your life, you're looking back and going, wow, not much changed 
in my life. Like we need people who can speak the truth in love to us. Now here's why I think this is such a timely thing to be talking about right now. Because you know we've gone through this pandemic and I know that we're still kind of in the midst of coming out of it and all of that, but we can begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And we've learned through this pandemic, we've learned through the last 14, 15 months, we've learned that there's a lot of great things that you can download, that you can download great content, that you can download great music, that you can work virtually, uh, you can have meetings virtually, you can communicate all kinds of things virtually. Like we've learned all of that. But here's the deal, you cannot really download encouragement. Encouragement requires presence. Encouragement requires an incarnational presence, being there in the flesh. Encouragement is not just communicated through words, encouragement is communicated through a smile, through a touch, it's communicated by our body language, our posture, all the nonverbal messages we send when we are physically present. Like it's hard to communicate all of that from here on up. And like for the last 14 months, it's been like formal from here on up and party down here. Like we got the shirt on and the PJs on and sometimes the tie on and the PJs on. And it's just like everything that's needed to actually experience encouragement in our lives, you just can't download it that way. We've done our best. You've done your best, but there's just something different about being present. So give thanks to the Lord for the technology that's allowed us to stay connected through this pandemic when we had to be apart. Give praise to the Lord for that, but don't let it become a substitute for authentic community. Don't think that your faith is fully downloadable because it's not. Don't think that don't think that discipleship is fully downloadable because it's not. Don't think that you can somehow download the encouragement that you need to become the person God created you to be, that you can download all of that because you cannot. So find ways to surround yourself with encouragers. Get in a small group. I know we talk about small groups all the time, but if you've been like thinking about that and wondering about that, saying, yeah, I need to do that, just do that. Just just go ahead and do that. Or get more engaged. If you're already in a small group and not real engaged in the small group, just get more engaged in the small group. Or find a ministry that fits your unique gifts and talents and abilities and skills and start serving with a team. Surround yourself with some other people. Find any way you can to surround yourself with encouragers because you cannot grow and I cannot grow into the person God created us to be unless we're surrounded by encouragers like Barnabas. Second thing is this. Not only do we need to find encouragers, we need to be encouragers. Not only do we need to surround ourselves with Barnabases in our life, we need to be a Barnabas. We need to be someone that speaks the truth and love to others. We need to be an encourager. And this ministry of encouragement uh, it isn't like this special spiritual gift that only certain people in the church have. I know that you know, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit and that some people have these gifts, some people have these gifts. And I've heard sometimes people say, oh, I just don't have the gift of encouragement. I go, no, 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 no. The, this is not like the gift of encouragement, the, the ministry of encouragement. It's not like this special gift that only a, a few number of people have. Like I've been in church a long time 
And I've never seen a church that had a department of encouragement. Never. I've never seen a church that had a pastor of encouragement. And that's because encouragement like permeates everything that we do. Like encouragement is like salt. You don't sit down to a meal and eat your meat and eat your vegetables and eat your starch and then eat your salt. No, the salt permeates everything. The salt flavors everything. And that's what the ministry of encouragement does. It flavors everything that we do. Now, depending on your personality, you'll tend to fall on one side or the other uh, in terms of which part of speaking the truth in love that you find the easiest to do. Depending on your temperament, you will probably lean one way or the other on that. For some of you, you love to challenge. You love to exhort. You love to encourage people to move in a certain direction. You love to speak in to their lives. All of that. You love to call people to something better in their life, to something more in their life. But oftentimes, your challenging and exhorting doesn't maybe come across real loving. And for others of you, like you're super caring, super compassionate, sympathetic, empathetic, all of that, but you avoid confrontation at any cost. Like your greatest fear in life is that you will offend someone. Like you think that the one unpardonable sin that scripture talks about is offending someone. Like everything else, okay, but oh, I can never, ever offend someone. So you'll probably, depending on your temperament or your personality, fall on one side or the other. That's why the ministry of encouragement always involves an incredible amount of wisdom and discernment because there are these built-in tensions. And every time we talk about this, every time we talk about speaking the truth in love, what you tend to do is you tend to hear it through the lens of your own personality, your own temperament. So I talk about speaking the truth in love, and some of you walk out of the sermon and go, yeah, finally. Some excuses to speak the truth to some people that I've been waiting to speak some truth to. And that's exactly right. We need to speak the truth. We need to confront. We need to let people know what the truth is, all of that. And you kind of, you hear everything that's said through the lens of your temporary personality. Or others of you, you hear speak the truth in love and you walk in and go, yeah, just need to love people, just be loving and the world will change if I'm just loving and all that. It's just like you listen and you hear through the, through the temperament and the personality. And that's why it's so challenging to do it. It takes so much wisdom. It takes so much discernment because of these built-in tensions. Because you want to be able to speak truth in someone's life, but you want to do it in a way that will build them up and not push them away. I know I've used this illustration before, but I, I think it just, it's my visualization. When I was a little kid, uh, five or six, uh, we went on a vacation. My mom and I, and my mom and dad and I went on a vacation. Went out to Boston, visit my brother. He was a pastor in Boston. And uh, then the three of us, mom and dad and myself, went to Cape Cod, and we visited a lot of the little cities in Cape Cod. It was a really, really cool time. And we were at one of these little, um, little towns that was right on the Atlantic Ocean, and I got, away from, I got away from my parents, which happened often, actually, when we went on vacation. I got away from my parents. They didn't know where I was. And I was just kind of strolling the streets of the town and just kind of taking it in. It's awesome. I was six. I was in control, large and in charge, all of that. And uh, parents don't know where I am. They're frantic. They're looking. And I find my way to this uh, pier uh, that juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. 
And so I'm just walking on this pier. Think about this, this little six-year-old boy, no adult around. Uh, people would be arrested now for this. And I'm just walking out on this pier, getting closer and closer and closer to the edge. And my parents, who are frantically looking for me, finally find me on this pier. And they're at, they're at kind of the end of the pier on the one side, and I'm at getting close to the end of the pier that drops off into the Atlantic Ocean. And my mom is the, one, is the first one to kind of, you know, do something, and, and she speaks truth. You know, she starts yelling at me, and Rodney, stop, stop, Rodney. She's the only one that could call me Rodney, by the way, but Rodney, you gotta stop. And, and as she's yelling, Rodney, stop, Rodney, stop, which is truth, she keeps, she keeps coming towards me. And every step she takes towards me, I take another step back. And so she keeps walking towards me, and I keep walking back, and I'm getting closer and closer and closer to the destruction of falling into the Atlantic Ocean. And my dad kind of sees what's going on, and he puts his, he puts his arm on my mom, and he says, Orel, which is truly her name, and says, you know, just wait. And he just pauses and when they stop walking, I stop walking. And my dad speaks truth to me as well in that moment. My dad says in a very, very calm voice, Rodney, you're about three steps from falling into the Atlantic Ocean. And I think that would be a bad thing <laughs> for you to do that. It was very calm. And like just the fact of how he said it and the fact they weren't walking, I kind of, in my little six-year-old way, kind of gathered myself and turned around for the first time to realize that I was about two steps away from disaster. And I always think about that story as kind of a visualization, a picture of this ministry of encouragement, this exhortation that that is exhortation, it's truth, it's challenge, but it's the kind of truth and challenge that's done in a way that draws people towards you rather than pushing them away. And that's an incredibly daunting task. So how do we come close to being able to do that? Because all of us want to do that. Like all of us want to be people that are honest with the people that we care about, can speak the truth, can, can tell someone when they're at the edge of a cliff and about to fall off. Like we all want to be able to do that, but we want to do it in a way that doesn't, that doesn't have a kind of opposite effect of what we want because we do it in a way that, that pushes them even further away. So how do you live this out? Like how do you really, in a practical way, speak the truth in love? And I think, I think Barnabas gives us the clearest understanding of how to do that. It says in verse 24, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. And full of faith. Now in the Bible, one of the words that's used to describe the Holy Spirit is the word, interesting enough, paraclete, the comforter, 
the encourager, the advocate. And paraclete is a form of parakaleo, encouragement. Paraclete is the noun, parakaleo is the verb. So think about this, Barnabas is doing parakaleo, he is doing the ministry of encouragement because he is filled with the paraclete. He's doing the ministry of parakaleo because he's filled with the paraclete. He's doing the ministry of encouragement because he's filled with the encourager. It's the encouragement he's receiving from the Holy Spirit that gives him the wisdom and the discernment to encourage others. And this is the thing we see over and over again in Acts. You know, we're, we're doing this 11-week series. And one of the things that, you know, as I've kind of engaged in some conversations with folks about this, is like, what's the theme that runs through Acts? You know, regardless of the narrative, regardless of the particular story. And, and this is one of the themes. It's this theme of... Uh, the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's this, it's this theme that whatever the disciples did, whatever miracles they performed, whatever sermons they preached, whatever discipleship that they did, whatever healing was going on, whatever encouragement was given, people that were coming to Jesus, that everything that they did, everything that they did, it flowed out of their allowing their lives to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because they knew something. They knew something. They knew that the more that they got to know God, the more that they allowed his spirit to fill them, the more intimately that they worshiped him, the more God would use them. Because they knew that the mission flows out of the relationship. See, that's where That's where we often go off the rails when it comes to trying to change the world. Like all of us want to change the world in some way, right? Like we want to, we'd hate to waste our lives and feel like we got to the end of our life and didn't make a difference, didn't matter that we were here, no one really was impacted by us. Like we want to make a difference. I think even if you don't know Jesus and don't understand who the one is who put you on this planet, there's just this internal desire to make a difference, to do something that matters with your life. But when you don't know that the mission flows out of the relationship, that's when... Like when you try to change the world without the one who can change the world living and dwelling within you. You can do that for a while, but it, it almost always ends in uh, disillusionment, discouragement, disappointment, Burnout, why am I doing this? The world's never gonna change. It's 
not going the way that I thought it was going to go. All of that, when you lose sight of the fact that the mission always flows out of the relationship. Remember, the book of Acts started, Acts 1, verse 8, with Jesus coming to his disciples and giving this promise where he says, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and you're going to have power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, I'm going to start with a relationship. The relationship of my dwelling within you through my spirit. And the mission, this change the world, impossible unbelievable mission, the most important mission that the world has ever known is going to flow out of this relationship. But don't lose sight of this relationship because the mission comes out of the relationship. God, we're so thankful for the mission that you've called us to this mission that um, has already changed the world in so many ways and is continuing to change the world. This mission that is able to cross over cultures and, and races and ethnicities and nationalities and borders and has allowed people to come together and experience fellowship and community that really it makes no sense that they are together other than the work of Jesus Christ in their lives. So we're thankful for the mission and that you trust us <laughs> to carry this mission out. But Lord, we pray that we will not in our zeal to change the world, that we will not lose sight that this mission flows out of our relationship with you. And so we will focus on that because when our relationship with you is right, the mission will get accomplished. So keep us focused on you. Keep us worshiping you Keep us growing in our intimacy with you so that you can use us to change the world. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.